This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org. Welcome to Beyond Zero on 3CR Radio. I'll keep the introductory short and sweet tonight because Vivian has a jam-packed full of our, full hour of interviews, which will get underway now, and we'll be starting with Senator Lee Rhiannon. Thank you. My guest tonight is Senator Lee Rhiannon. Lee represents the New South Wales Greens in the Senate and she's a fighter for many of the small communities we heard of from the Beyond Coal and Gas Gathering. Lee, I wasn't surprised to see you at the gathering as you've supported those communities like Gloucester and Northern Rivers and lots of others battling against coal and coal seam gas and it's a huge battle. But there weren't many other politicians there. Do you think this resistance to fossil fuels is sort of under their radar? Well, you could say it's under their radar, or maybe it's very strongly under the ra- on, on the radar of Labor, Liberal and National MPs, because unfortunately those parties continue to take donations from the fossil fuel industry. And even with this latest statement from the Labor Party about climate change, they're still not tackling the coal industry to the degree that's needed. Because let's remember, in New South Wales... 80% of our greenhouse gas emissions come from the burning and mining of coal. You can't be serious about climate change unless you have a plan for the phasing out of the coal industry. And while there has been some advance in what Labor's brought forward, obviously a bit better than the Liberal and Nationals, yeah. but it still, it still doesn't dele- deliver the rapid change that's needed. No, and it doesn't really mention coal. It seems to be just... That's why I say it seems to be under the radar. They don't. Why don't they come to those gatherings and find out what those people are thinking? It's as if they really don't want to know. I think don't want to know is, is the issue because that was a fantastic um, event uh, over three days and just really close to a lot of big coal mines and where they're proposing mm. the new coal loader um, in the Hunter and um, coal-fired power plants. So it was in an area that's crying out for trans- transformation and we need the transformation actually for our whole economy. Um, but under Labor's proposed policy, a price on polluting carbon 
which was at $24 a tonne, is now dropped down to $0.03 cents a tonne. Mm. And that's not going to have any impact. No. So in an area like the Hunter, where the transition's already happening, there's coal mines um, closing, we know some of these coal-fired power plants will go, that um, people are losing their jobs. And a responsible government would be working with industry, working with unions, ensuring the restructuring and the retraining is there. So individuals aren't put advantage, disadvantaged families aren't not feeling insecure and the whole economy is working. Yeah, well, look, uh, I I didn't notice a big union presence there or a worker presence. It seemed to be more the uh, landowners, the Aboriginal people, the um, community leaders there, who are and international leaders who, like the one from India, who is fighting off coal mines in India, where the people are opposed to it. It's a worldwide thing, but I really liked it because there are new alliances between groups who previously might never have talked to each other, and they probably still vote for completely different parties but they've got this common cause and to me it, it's participatory democracy it's a, a big sort of investment in democracy rather than just voting every couple of years and I, I love it it seems to me like a modern thing but meanwhile the laws are going against them in the New South Wales Parliament they've got new laws to make it really very uh, expensive to lock your gate or to take direct action so what's, what's going on there? Look, I think with the, the last reference that you made about these draconian laws in New South Wales that could send people to jail for seven years, thousands and thousands of dollars in fines just for exercising their democratic um, voice, just for um, protesting, direct action, something that the Greens very strongly support, would now be just about outlawed under these laws. And in many ways, I feel it's like the last hurrah, the last kick of a dying industry. Like when you look around the world, the world is turning its back on the coal industry. We now know that renewable energy is commercially and industrially viable. We need governments that have the courage and the conviction to drive the change. You can't just leave this up to the marketplace. We need to have uh, direct involvement from the government of the day at the state and federal level. So... But at the same time, and this comes back to your point, Vivian, is that the um, coal industry is powerful. It's got um, friends in high places. And the coal seam gas industry, which is really trying to establish a foothold in New South Wales with difficulty because of some fantastic actions. But they're trying to establish a foothold. The coal industry, those companies are looking for the last profits just at this stage when there's such um, rapid change in the industry. So they then call in, I say how I see it, but they call in some favours from their mates in Parliament in Macquarie Street, and uh, that's where our New South Wales Parliament is, and then they get these laws passed that will make it very hard for people who we met at the Beyond, um, the Beyond Coal and Gas Conference to actually carry out these fantastic plans they've got. So I'm sure the activists will get around it. People historically will take a stand when the wrong thing is done. But we are at a very critical stage in our history and we know it's critical because of how fast the um, climate change is galloping and impacting on the world. Well, yes, I read an article in The Guardian where you were quoted as saying um, these fossil fuel companies have sapped the vitality and integrity of Australia's response to climate change. And I feel a lot of climate activists are now rising up again, though they'd been pretty crushed before. How have you seen this play out, this sapping of the integrity? Uh, the integrity of the political process. Yeah. 
Look, um, we've seen that really well over a decade. And in this, over this period, I'd put it over a couple of decades, that we've seen increasing do- political donations coming in from resource companies, the oil and gas companies, coal companies, big developers who have their hands in different things. And at the same time, we've seen a weakening of the laws. We see this particularly with regard to the planning laws, and this is very relevant to the mining industry because it's the planning laws that cover their um, new mines, their expansion of existing mines. And when you weaken those laws, they've been weakened in favour of the owners of resource companies, of, of developers, and made it much harder for ordinary people to be able to challenge uh, these um, mines, these, uh, this overdevelopment, much harder to challenge on the grounds of um, increasing greenhouse gas emissions, causing yeah. local environment damage, adding to air pollution, damaging our waterways. And the laws really give very little... They certainly don't provide the um, ability for people to actually have a say in what's happening in a proactive way. Once the bad projects come along, they're also, now they also have a limited ability to be able to challenge and stop those bad developments. Mm. Now, at the same time we've seen those laws weakened in terms of the ability to, for ordinary people to engage, we've seen the political donations increase. So millions and millions of dollars now come from the resource sector to the Liberal, National and Labor parties. And at the same time, we've seen an increase in the subsidies. So there's two factors, the increase in the subsidies to the fossil fuel industry and a weakening of the laws that would have allowed ordinary people to have a say. So you add all that up and what I find often, and you mentioned, you know, I've done a lot of work with these communities, people become very cynical. Mm. And I've had people say to me, what's the point of me speaking out? What's the point of writing letters? I know they won't listen to me. And that's very worrying. Sort of for the, our fabric of our society, the de- democratic involvement of people. Oh, so it is. I think these are very big issues that we're dealing with. I think a lot of people have been very sickened by that and all these uh, things about the Panama Papers, you know, this idea of just absolutely system rigged against people like us and uh, all these lobbyists who can get in, in to have access. They pay for access to um, people in Parliament and people like us would never be able to speak to them or certainly influence them. But I, I noticed this is sort of like an international thing as well. Hillary Clinton, according to Greenpeace, received about $6.9 million from lobbyists and donors connected to coal, oil and gas. And, and the Greenpeace, I read a report about examples of this, and one of them was that she, she'd been involved as Secretary of State is pushing shale gas initiatives around the world. Mm. And there was just one little example that grabbed my attention because it was so stark. The, the, the Bulgarian parliament passed an anti-fracking moratorium and so Hillary Clinton sent a special envoy and these bans were eventually overthrown. Now, that, that you know, she denies now. She's Now it's a bad look to have donations, isn't it? I think she got very upset recently in yeah. public when she was challenged about these donations. Yeah, they weren't and they were, you know, it's an accountancy thing. But, but you can see that this money is flowing into her coffers and it's a very bad look for her. Can you give us some examples here in Australia where people are compromised, their decisions are compromised by their fossil fuel friends? 
Look, we certainly can look up the donations that um, these companies have given. In terms of saying there's a direct link, like we don't know the deals that have gone on behind closed doors, but you can certainly see that the that there are trends in weakening of laws. But overall, over the last three years, the Labor and the Liberals and the Nationals, they've picked up about $3.7 million from fossil fuel companies. Now, what's interesting is at the same time, fossil fuel companies receive about $2,000 in subsidies for every dollar donated by the sector to political parties. Look, the Liberals, the Liberals, um, I don't know about the Nationals, but the Liberals are divided on climate change. But at the moment, and this is where I'm finding many people are annoyed with the Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, that he previously had spoken about the need for rapid action and now he's been captured by the Conservative elements within his party. And we are, we're, we, Australia is disgraceful. We're possibly the only developed country that is barely taking any significant action on climate change to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And now we have the evidence within our own country, like the Great Barrier Reef. I mean, that was the most shocking report, really disturbing, that almost all of the Great Barrier Reef has been affected by coral bleaching. And 50% of the bleach corals are likely to die. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that's so irresponsible. That fact alone should have been the biggest wake-up call for Malcolm Turnbull to come out and have the courage to say, we just have to turn our policies around. Yeah. We can't have business as usual. Mm-hmm. We know who the main culprits are in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. It's a coal industry in this country and we're going to fast track renewables so we can have a plan to phase out coal-fired power power plants and Mm. this is the plan. Now that's what a responsible Prime Minister should do now. Oh, well, I'm holding my breath. (laughs) Look, the 350.org campaign called... It's called Pollution Free Politics, and we spoke earlier to Blair Polisi. It's asking MPs to refuse donations from fossil fuel companies. It's not illegal to receive a donation, so you know we're asking them to refuse the donations and end the subsidies that are propping up cheap flights and more drilling for oil and gas. And I think it's doing that turnaround. That, you know, the idea is to make a turnaround, to make a public gesture. The Greens had no trouble signing, but that, a lot of other MPs have had great trouble signing. You've mentioned the millions that they've already received. How difficult do you think it will be for them to eventually refuse donations and refuse or end the subsidies. They, a subsidy is something I've asked a lot of them on the radio and they just skirt around it. They will not give me a straight answer on subsidies. How, how imminent is it, do you think, that they'll change on that? Look, I think right at the moment, it's hard to see how we're going to have the breakthrough. Like, we, this industry is strong, it's got it's lobbyists, it's got you know, government, government and the opposition are basically in its pocket. So I can understand why people feel despondent. But look, I always feel optimistic. I find human beings are incredibly creative. There is a growing movement, and again, going back to the um, conference that we started talking about, Beyond um, Coal and Gas, like hundreds and hundreds of people from across 
across the country, as you, you've described it so well. And there is a big movement growing. And, like, I remember growing up with the Vietnam War. I thought that was going to go on forever and that the apartheid movement would be there forever. We protested because that's what you had to do. But then we had the breakthrough and the world public opinion was so critical. I remember Nelson Mandela saying that very directly, that it was world public opinion that was critical to defeating apartheid. And so, yes, right now, it's really hard to see how do you beat such a powerful um, industry like the fossil fuel industry that counts its, pol- its profits not even in billions of dollars but trillions of dollars, so mm-hmm. dominant for so long. But the world is heating up and we, and we have to win this one and we've got to win it quickly. So, yeah, it's all, all, all power to people taking the direct actions, exposing the scams that the, the lobbyists run and we need more of that because we can turn it around and we have to. Okay, thank you very much. That was Senator Lee Rhiannon. She's the Greens representative in New South Wales. Thanks, Lee. Um, Thanks, Vivian. Welcome back. You're listening to Beyond Zero Emissions on 3CR Radio. That was Senator Lee Rhiannon speaking to Vivian there. Very interesting indeed. Next, we'll hear Vivian speak to Blair Police from 350.org. But before we do that, I want to play you a track from recorded here in our very own studios at 3CR in the mid-90s. This is Kev Carmody Eulogy. Speak my name again when you lay me down. Ooh. Ooh. 
Blair Polisi tonight. We're talking about the pollution-free politics campaign. But before that, I thought I'd like to ask Blair about Bill McKibben's recent visit. He gave a talk at Paddington Town Hall, which we've broadcast to you listeners. But I'd like to ask Blair, um, what's, what are his latest ideas? How are these ideas developing around pollution-free politics in the USA as well as here and around the world? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, Bill touched on themes that are basically the same in every country in the world. The influence of the fossil fuel industry has been devastating for uh, allowing us to come up with policies and address quickly what we need to do for climate change. Um, So he talked about that a little bit in the context of the U.S. election, but mostly as well in Australia. Uh, And he specifically focused on the big break-free event that's happening in Australia and globally uh, as a way to speed up the call for change. Uh, Paris was great. It's done terrific things for getting us on a course to change, but it won't keep us below two degrees. And the 350 organized event called Break Free, uh, along with many, many other organizations around the world, is really about that stepping up of people everywhere to see if we can't demand very fast action in a way that uh, government policy isn't keeping up. Yes, well, by the time this program goes to air, the Break Free in Newcastle, that big event, will have happened. But I think that it'll give people heart to realize that people in Nigeria, people in everywhere in South America are also taking this action because they've got the same problem that like Naomi Klein showed in her book where we're joined Blockadia is sort of joined um, in this similar problem and it's after all only a few corporations really who are doing this taking subsidies from governments and sort of bribing them really uh, paying money getting far too much influence in democracy which is I think that makes people a bit really sickened and I think we have to overcome that if we're going to campaign a lot of people have said to me oh, it's just so sickening I'm just so sick of it you know the Panama Papers all these revelations mm. people just feel just so turned off it seems to be so big so what would you say to people who feel like that the whole system is corrupted sickening what can we do how would you get people involved well, I- I think there are lots of ways for people to be involved. One is, uh, you know, the election is coming up in Australia. Get a little bit active at whatever level you are comfortable, whether it's asking your politicians to not take fossil fuel money uh, in their party or through the you know, election to um, stand up to that influence that is preventing us from coming up with the necessary policies. Uh, and has been going on for, you know, so long that it's become part of the system. Um, I think doing things like break free and, what, again, whatever way people are comfortable, some people will be out on the water in Newcastle in boats, uh, 
being part of a flotilla to block the, the coal, world's largest coal shipping terminal. Others will be on the beach just playing a support role. All of that is relevant. And there will be other things that are happening throughout uh, the country where we really have to step up to say we will not allow new fossil fuel projects to go ahead. Post-Paris, we know it doesn't make sense and that, in fact, we signed on to that agreement. So now we have to force our government to deliver policies that will mean that we are part of that solution side and not part of the problem. Mm. Uh, divestment is another way, you know, all those ways that people can uh, get involved in, in whatever level they're comfortable. I think every one of them is important. Yeah. Well, one of the things I like about 350.org campaigns, because they're international, you, you have it very clearly set, the stages. And in this campaign, pollution-free politics, listeners, you can just list, look that up on the internet, pollution-free politics. Um, one of the first stages in a month ago, I think, was just writing letters to MPs or making visits to MPs and there was a letter to Scott Morrison leading to the budget from about 50 organisations urging, urging him to end the billions in subsidies that are propping up the very industries that are causing Antarctica to melt and the Barrier Reef to bleach and they were organisations like health organisations, doctors, firefighters, Indigenous youth, Uniting Earth, you know, the church groups, uh, people on the front line or people worried about the immorality of trashing, trashing our climate, the sort of existential big picture. And so all these people signed their name, the group's names, to this letter to Scott Morrison for his budget. And I wonder how you think the pressure is starting to affect the big parties. Do you see any cracks in their united front around subsidies? That's a good question. Uh, interestingly, we've had quite a few people sign on to the uh, to the pledge, which is not to take fossil fuel money, uh, and including some Labour people, obviously Greens and Independents. But after uh, Labour's announcement yesterday of its policy, we saw some additional people come on board. And needless to say, it looks like Liberal Party-wise, we are not seeing anyone signing off. So <laughs> I think going to going to the polls, there's some clear questions that people can ask their elected officials and the candidates about, um, you know, where they stand on this and that they feel strongly this is an issue that affects us all and that we need to be front-footing not only to protect our own, uh, you know, the impacts of climate and our own environment, but also economically preparing for the post-low-carbon world. You know, Australia is, thanks to our own doing, now many, many years behind many countries on renewables. We've done nothing but set back companies that want to progress uh, and move forward, uh, and so many other things, you know, looking for innovation and energy systems and um, approaches that are a different model than we currently have to distributed energy. Uh, these are questions that are relevant to all of us and our future, and I think, you know, it's our job to get out there and ask those questions. So that's how we hope to take our campaign forward between now and the election uh, through pollution-free politics, and we hope we'll get, we do already have hundreds of people in electorates around the country, but we'd love to see more coming on board to join us. Yeah, well, we're broadcasting here in Melbourne and I looked on your website for the Melbourne uh, or the Victorian politicians, people like Andrew Robb, Josh Frydenberg, mm. and they're on your list of blockers. And I'll just tell the listeners, it's really great fun to look at this website. It's one of the best websites I've ever seen, really, for a campaign <laughs> Lovely, because thanks. it's actually really funny. There's, um, you go 
pollution-free politics, and there's a terrific little graphic with Craig Combay on a sort of a, a turntable, you know, revolving door between being Minister for Climate Change and then he's now a consultant for Santos. Yeah, Santos. Yes. Right. And then you get other politicians, you know, this revolving door, which a lot of people know about it in the abstract, but just to see the little graphics, it makes you laugh with a sort of horror, you know, that this is what happens. It's so easy to get a job in the industry and then come up mm-hmm. as Minister for, you know, Environmental Protection or something. Greg Hunt's another Melbourne Victorian politician who listeners can, um, you know, click onto this website, see what his record is and then adopt him. The idea is you click on adopt him. And I'd like to know, what are your strategies after this first polite thing of adopting the politician, writing to him, please sign the pledge, da da da, all that. What's the next sure. step when we're going to in and towards the election take a lot more colourful action. What's that yeah, going to look like? Yeah, there's a whole range of things, you know, from the very simple little events in electorates to some that are stepping up a bit. Um, in all of those, we've been lucky that in, all, in actually 40 electorates we've had volunteers and in most cases groups of volunteers go in and have meetings with their elected officials and ask them about the pledge and um, whether they feel like they can objectively look at climate change and solutions given the connection between their parties and donations from fossil fuel companies. So, you know, it started with meetings. We'll have more meetings as, as we run to the election. And we hope to be at various public events, of course, asking these questions and demanding some real answers and putting climate on the election agenda. Uh, but as for the actual events, I'd say, you know, sign up and take part and watch this space. And we'll be putting up some of the photos and video from from the events around the country. And uh, I think it's a really critical thing. Vivian, you talked about people feeling frustrated by the system and that they, they see this happening and they feel like they've got no way to um, have an impact on it. On an election year, it's the perfect time to do exactly what a democracy allows us to do, which is ask hard questions of our elected officials and to ask them and put some pressure on them to provide policy on what they're going to do about issues we care about. So now's the time, and hopefully more and more people will come on board as we uh, kind of charge toward the election. Yes. Uh, some of the dra- dramatic events I saw on the website, they were suggesting people, once you've adopted an MP, you might like to go outside his office or her office and uh, dress up as, uh, you know, Mr Big with a top hat handing over uh, brown paper bags full of money or <laughs> bottles of expensive wine <laughs> and just dramatise what, what's involved because perhaps people just can't really believe it that this could be true, that people could be bribed to make decisions. But after all, our, the present Minister uh, for the Environment has never disapproved a mine. He's approved every mine that's mm. come across his desk and the previous one too. So the, the mine approvals keep coming even though the world is stopping and saying we have to have a really huge change of change now and leave that fossil fuel in the ground but our government keeps on approving and there must be some bribery behind it to to make them frightened not to do it they may must be frightened i think so it's interesting if you can put that pressure on them uh, just as citizens and it's in this um, non-violent way it's very non-violent it's very attractive sort of way to do things um, Blair, then, I'd like to know what your response is to the ALP policy now. They have put out their policy and it promises a lot of renewables but no mention of closing coal and gas exports and not even phasing coal-fired power plants. What, what, what's your response to that? Yeah, I think it's a real mistake. It's a, it's a big gap in a policy that is otherwise very promising but 
our biggest contribution globally on the carbon front is our coal, oil, and gas exports. So to not include a transition phase economically from that to cleaner alternatives that will both help us economically but also be a bigger positive impact from a climate point of view is a real lack, I think, in a policy that is otherwise filled with some pretty great things about um, transition here of our domestic power and renewable energy. Um, interested today, the Greens announced uh, more of their policy and, of course, a total phase-out of new mines, new fossil fuel uh, projects is on the cards for them. That's what we need to see. We need to look at how we're going to move away from coal mining, from gas, and from oil, and transition our economy into things that can support us in the future when countries like China and India stop buying fossil fuels and look to making a rapid transition to renewables. So I think that leadership is still lacking. And, you know, most importantly, it's lacking in our current government where there is no policy to phase that out um, and where we have to do the most work to put pressure on to bring about that change. Yes, everyone says look to China because they're really leading, but they have five-year plans and they put these things in place, they achieve them and then they go on to the next five-year plan, whereas we Mm. put policies in place and then the next crowd who get in seem to rip up those policies and and go back to square one. It's, It's extremely wasteful. Yeah, and I think it's also really has meant that we're not tracking economically how fast the world is moving away from fossil fuels, including our biggest importers of uh, coal and gas. Uh, And, you know, that is something in terms of economic preparedness we just aren't on top of. So we're acting as if that coal and gas market is going to continue to be there when post-Paris countries are moving very, very quickly to ramp up renewables, become energy independent, and move away from the importing of resources that, like coal and oil and gas that we have been putting on the market for far too long without a lot of diversity into what we should be moving to, whether that's systems uh, support for the new distributed energy approach or, you know, whole new things. Um, Some innovation is needed, some creativity, some work with communities, um, and in particular, a focus on how we will minimize the impact on the communities that are currently most dependent on on fossil fuel for their livelihood. Yes, I think um, Blair was at the conference that I have uh, broadcast about here called Beyond Coal and Gas, and I'm sure, Blair, you'd agree with me that it was wonderful to see, it was very heartening to see the number of people, over 300 people there, who represent communities in remote areas all working on this thing and it's below the radar, I think, of the media and Mm. of the general politicians there didn't seem to be many politicians there at all and I think it's below their radar but there is a community groundswell and no matter who wins the election, I think there's a lot of people now growing number creating momentum against this you know, death trap that we're in with the coal and gas and that we have to, in fact, transition and, and if they won't make the plan for us to transition, we're going to push it, I think. Is that your feeling? Absolutely. and Yeah, for sure. And I think those communities are starting to get smart about uh, working together and sharing information that they have about the opposition they're up against. Um, and they're getting a lot more savvy about how to work together and bring about some impact on, uh, you know, that can speed up the change for them 
and hopefully, you know, help find ways for them to um, make the transition and find new ways as a community to be employed and, and look to be part of that future low-carbon economy. So, you know, if our government isn't doing it, uh, we'll have to drag them kicking and screaming. But leadership from those communities themselves is really inspiring. It is. Okay, well, I think we have to end there, Blair. I'd just like to say um, a quote I have uh, from Nicola Casualet from Greenpeace. He said, now is not the time for half measures. To meet the Paris Agreement, 90% of our coal must stay in the ground. And I'd just like you to tell the listeners, uh, what is the website again and how they can get involved with your campaign? Sure. Uh, Pollution-free politics in particular is going, of course, from now until the election, and we need all the help we can get, even if you're just able to do question asking, emailing, maybe talking within your community about putting climate on their election agenda, uh, and looking at those climate blockers and seeing where we can work our our very hardest to make sure those people are not re-elected if you care about climate change. So pollution-free politics is the site and uh, lots of ways to get involved and be part of that within your community and within the national push. Fantastic. Thank you very much. That was Blair Blair Polisi, CEO of 350.org. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Renewable energy transition is inevitable. The economics of renewable energy mean that it's cheaper. Uh, wind is cheaper than uh, new coal-fired power stations. Rooftop solar is cheaper than buying energy from the grid. The economics mean that it's inevitable. We also have really ageing power infrastructure in this country. The average age of a coal-fired power station is 37 years. The maximum useful life of a coal-fired power station is maybe 40 years. So in the next 15 to 20 years, we have to transition our energy system. And the future is bright because the future is renewable. But the thing is, while this renewable energy transition is inevitable... What isn't inevitable is that it will be done at the speed that climate change demands and it will be done in a way that is just and fair and benefits all Australians. So in this power plan, we set out how we can go about maximising the benefits uh, of this renewable energy transition for Australia and doing so at a speed that the climate science says we need to. So I'm going to talk about the first part of the plan, which is our plan to reboot the system, because our energy system isn't set up for decentralised renewables. It was set up for large coal-fired power stations far away from people like you and I using our light bulbs and uh, our stoves and things like that, and there was a one-way flow of power from upstream in the Hunter Valley or the Latrobe Valley uh, to us here in Wentworth. And that was it. We were meant to turn on our light bulbs and we were meant to pay our bills and that was it. But the thing is, there's been a solar revolution. There are now 1.5 million power stations or plus on, on the rooftops of everyday Australians. Who here has solar on their roof? Yeah, a good proportion um, for an electorate where there's a lot of high density living, uh, where it's harder to get solar on your roof. The thing is, 
the rules of the game are set up for those big generators and these large distribution and transmission towers. They're not set up for the likes of you and I to put solar on our roof. They're not set up for communities to control and own our energy infrastructure. So we need to reboot the system. We need to change the rules of the game so it's fair and accessible. And we've outlined a range of things in the Homegrown Power Plan about what we need to do to do that. I'm just going to talk about three or four. First one, we need all parties to commit to a transition to clean energy. We don't just need a target, though a target is good. We need a commitment to a transition. We can't just say, oh, we'll let the market do it, it'll all happen. Because it won't, it won't happen at the speed we need, it won't happen fairly in the way we need it uh, you know, for that benefit. The second thing we need to do is we need to change the one sentence that rules them all. We have a national electricity law in Australia, and it has an objective. And this objective says that the whole electricity system should work in the long-term interests of consumers. That sounds good, right? The thing is, they define the long-term interests of consumers in terms of economics, reliability, safety, nothing to do with climate change, nothing to do with environmental sustainability, nothing to do with fairness. It means when any time a rule is made or a decision is made in our energy system, it means that you cannot consider, they will not consider the climate impact. It means that we have 1.5 million plus households going in one direction and our energy bureaucracy going in the other direction. It's just not tenable. We need to change that sentence. The third thing that we need to do is we need to reward people for participating in this energy transition and not penalise them from doing so. We need to put a fair price on solar, we need to make it easy, we need to make it accessible, and we not, don't need to smack people with high fixed prices, um, unfair penalties for doing the right thing. There's a whole other range of things that we need to do. We need to make the internet, the energy system more like the internet. There's a whole range of exciting reforms happening around the world that we can adopt here in Australia. I really encourage you to read the Homegrown Power Plan. Those are just a few of the ideas and the nuggets of rebooting our energy system. And I'm going to hand over to the amazing Miriam Lyons to talk about how we remove some of the roadblocks that are holding us back. Welcome back. You're listening to Beyond Zero Emissions on 3CR Radio. So far, we've heard Vivian speak with Senator Lee Rhiannon, Blair Police, CEO from 350.org, and we just heard Nikki Eisen speaking very passionately there. Our final interview tonight is with Marion Lyons. Here we go. Miriam Lyons is the co-author of the Homegrown Power Plan. She was at the Beyond Coal and Gas Gathering with new policies. And uh, recently we talked to Claire O'Rourke, who also talked about this plan, fast-forwarding renewable energy. But I'd like Miriam to tell us about the third part of the plan, which is called Removing the Roadblocks. So welcome, Miriam. Thank you. Paul. Delighted to be on a podcast that I listen to so oh, often. Oh, that's, that's lovely. When you told me you listened to the Beyond Zero show, I was very pleased. <laughs> We don't meet the listeners, you know, but occasionally they pop up and it's really nice to know that it's getting a bit of airplay. Listen, how is coal a roadblock to renewables? I think I sort of know the answer, but 
renewables should be able to just boom ahead by itself, shouldn't it, and coal decline. But why is it stuck in the path of renewables? Well, first, it's really important to be clear that renewables have absolutely won the economic race on new build electricity generation. So new build wind is cheaper than new build coal and solar is set to catch up by 2020 and that's just around the corner now. So that's that's done, that's dusted. New coal cannot compete with new renewable. But written off old, ageing, polluting coal-fired generators that were built on the taxpayer's dime decades ago with subsidised access to the grid, often with sweetheart deals in terms of access to artificially cheap coal from state governments, artificially cheap water. Nobody can compete with those guys, including new-build coal, um, which is one of the reasons that um, almost all official projections of Australia's wholesale prices over the long term are set to rise because they know that that existing ageing coal-fired power fleet is going to need to be replaced with something. Mm. Um, And when it's replaced, no matter what it's replaced with, they will no longer be old written-off generators. Um, And so basically nothing can compete with things like Hazelwood's power station. It has massive costs. It has massive health costs. And, of course, it has massive costs to the climate. Mm. Um, And that is now rebounding, of course, in Australia with the damage to the Great Barrier Reef with the 93% coral bleaching because the world is warming. And that's the direct result of the impact of the coal that we've been burning in Australia and the coal that others have been burning around the world. I can't understand why those very polluting plants aren't already on a list to be decommissioned on some orderly list, you know, that someone is planning, you know, one by one, year by year, they'll be decommissioned. And I wonder, is it because they've bribed the government or because the air pollution laws don't have enough teeth in them or because they just don't know how to kickstart a clean-up? You know, they can't see who should go first. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting question. Look, I think there's a number of factors that are fed into it. One thing, I think it's taken a while for people to wake up to the inevitability of this transition away from coal-burning power. It's relatively recently that we have seen the oldest of Australians existing coal-burning power stations speak up and say, you know what, we're not going to replace these with more coal-burning power. So that's reasonably new. So we saw the head of AGL come out um, last year and say, you know what, it's important that government policy incentivise investment in lower emitting technology while at the same time ensuring that the older, less efficient and reliable power stations are removed from Australia's energy mix. That's Andrew Messi, CEO of AGL, you know, which earned itself the title of Australia's biggest greenhouse gas emitter when it went on that big coal-fired power shopping spree under the previous CEO between 2012 and 2014. So I think think that... um, the consensus that is now emerging behind the scenes that this transition is inevitable um, has not yet fully entered public consciousness. You know, it's really sharpened a lot of people's attention on this issue. The fact that um, the coal-fired power stations in Port Augusta that were owned by Atlanta were expected to be shut down much later and then you ended up having snap snap announcements of much more rapid closures with um, no plan in place for a just transition transition for the workers and for the community of Port Augusta. I think that's really sharpened people's attention on the consequences of 
you know, just kind of letting the market rip and having this transition happen without a plan. Uh, look, I'm worried that the taxpayer will wear the cost of this clean-up. It's not like a Kodak moment where one industry just yeah. sort of goes down the plug hole of history and another one takes over. There's a payment here and clean-up and rehabilitation. Certainly not fair to leave the communities um, to deal with an unrehabilitated power station and you know unrehabilitated mine that was feeding it no. um, when they've had to put up with the health costs of living next to the things for so long. You know, no one should have to live next to these clunkers and no one should have to wear the cost of companies, you know, declaring... Tell us about the reverse auctions. I think a lot of people have heard of that in the ACT, but you had quite a bit on that in your report about that being the way to sort of kickstart the um, phase out of those power plants. The model that we talk about in the removing the roadblock section is based on some work by some ANU academics. Um, And what they proposed is essentially, you know, they were originally envisaging that this model would apply to the first couple of the most polluting and dirtiest coal-fired power stations, essentially as a way of kick-starting the process. Because as well as um, the owners of these stations being nervous about, you know, how big the rehabilitation costs are and not having been required by governments to put aside big enough bonds to cover those rehabilitation costs, there's also the fact that if you get a couple of power stations shut down, there's a, mar- there's a mild boost in the wholesale power prices that all of the remaining generators then get the benefit from. So there's an incentive for all of them to kind of hang around and twiddle their thumbs and mm. hope that somebody else gets out first so that they get to reap the benefits of that. Um, and that's you know a problem which is sort of really well known to economists. It's sort of a, a situation in which all of them continuing to hang around, some of them will go bust and it's not going to be in be- the benefits of the entire sector um, but all of them as individuals um, have an incentive to kind of hope that it'll be the other guys who get out first. Okay. Um, so this was proposed really as a way of kind of breaking that game of chicken if you like, that yeah. deadlock um, you know which obviously has a whole lot of costs as long as that continues, the pollution continues communities continue to have to deal with the local health costs we continue to have a polluting power sector. Mm. So it was a, a proposed as a way of kick-starting the process. So what we've proposed is a hybrid of a model that the Australia Institute proposed and the model that these ANU academics proposed, um, which is basically to have the um, Australian energy market operator identify the amount of excess supply in each state that can be closed down without raising any reliability issues and then run auctions um, each year until that amount of supply has been shut down. At the moment what that looks like is at least one of the Coburn power stations in Victoria and New South Wales and probably Queensland. Um, That sounds good. Beyond that point you could potentially link a mechanism like that to a longer term renewable energy target. So you could ask the energy transition agency that we've proposed to be set up that would be basically tasked with you know, making sure that this transition away from fossil fuels and towards renewables wasn't well managed and you know, did take into account all of the local factors around, okay, well, how do we make sure that supply stays reliable in this area? Yeah. Beyond, beyond that point, you could have this transition agency basically be in charge of making sure that a renewable energy target was bringing renewables in as a mechanism like that was pushing 
coal out. Miriam, your background is in policy making, and I'd like you to explain how the government can get out of the subsidies it is now giving for more coal and oil exploration, for more cheap aviation fuel and more coal mines. Uh, they want to be agile, but they don't want to send shockwaves through the industries and the workers in that sector. Mm-hmm. So what policies are needed? Well, I mean, it's, it's fairly straightforward, really. We should be ending all of the tax incentives that are pushing spending in the wrong direction and that are encouraging um, not just more fossil fuel extraction, but the wasteful use of fossil fuels. Um, at a state government level, there are some really appalling examples where, you know, Money is basically being thrown um, at, for example, you know, big uh, rail lines um, to, that are really only aimed at existing coal mines or the proposed coal mines that have no other public interest justification. Um, at a federal government level, what you find is that a lot of it is in the form of, just as you said, things like the exploration um, tax credit. There's there's some uh, quite hilariously bad. Um, Examples being sympathetic to the government in a way they can't do a just mm. kachong, you know, cut off a uh, previous policy. How do they phase it out so that, um, or can they just cut it short, like from one budget to another? Just sorry, now this. Uh, yeah, it's it's absolutely possible to phase out tax concessions over time. So, for example, the Australian Conservation Foundation has proposed capping diesel fuel rate rebates at twenty thousand per claim which would incentivise big mining companies to save fuel and invest in cleaner alternatives, um, but it would ensure that that diesel fuel rebate is still available to most farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would deliver a federal budget saving of around $15 billion over four years. But if you wanted to phase that in more gradually, you could start by capping it at 100000 per claim, for example, and then bring it down over time. Okay. Um, so I can see there... One idea that we proposed... I can see there are lots of ideas there, but we can only sort of do one example for each thing. So subsidies, Mm. you phase them out for those, uh, and and then they, yeah. Anything else about subsidies? Well, another example is the aircraft fuel excise discount. So at the moment, the airline industry gets to take home an extra $1.24 billion a year because of the federal government discount on its rate of fuel tax. Um, And so we could either just eliminate that and that would save us six billion over the next four years you know arguably airlines should be paying just as much for their fuel as uh, um, anybody else Um, or you could um, gradually convert that discount to uh, direct grant that was linked to incentivizing them to invest in fuel efficiency um or you could redirect it into buying land along the East Coast Highfield Rail Corridor. I mean, that's something that the Turnbull government looks like it's going to be supporting as high-speed rail. So, you know, arguably when there are subsidies like that, um, you can much more easily get widespread popular support for them when people know that the increase in the cost of one thing is going to be linked to something that will help bring down the cost of another thing that's a logical replacement for it. Right. Treasuries kind of hate high complicating taxes in that way. That's yeah. a kind of fancy word for <laughs> taking taxes from one thing and putting it into another. Um, but the people like it um, because it's really easy to see, okay, well, I might be paying a little bit more on my flights, but I know that what I'm buying with that is the 
um, ability for me and for my kids to actually have a fast rain in Australia, finally at last. Okay. Um, Listen, Miriam, the next question I want to ask you is about the grid. You said the grid is one of the biggest roadblocks to renewable energy. Now, I know this is a complex field in itself, so could you just put it in a nutshell why the grid uh, is a roadblock? Okay, great. Um, So... One thing is that we have a grid that was um, built for primarily big old coal burning generators that were in the places where the coal were coal was not necessarily the places where the best solar and wind uh, is to be found. Um, so in some cases the grid is in the wrong places. But the other thing is that, um, like we were talking about earlier, a lot of the existing old um, taxpayer-built coal-burning generators um, got access to the grid at the time when they were still in public hands. And when they were sold, um, no one was required to pay for the cost of the very expensive transmission lines that were built to them. And so now when new renewable generators are coming on, we've got this mix of public and private network companies that run the grid, that own the grid, that are natural monopolies and that therefore have the potential to abuse their monopoly power. Um, They are telling renewables, I'm sorry, you're going to have to pay for the full cost of this. And by the way, we might connect you, we might not, we might connect you in three weeks, we might connect you in three years, you know, just take a wild guess. Um, So one of the things we're proposing to deal with that is an independent grid planning authority Um, and also because it's really hard for the renewable companies to um, raise complaints um, about how they're getting treated by the network companies because ultimately they're kind of vulnerable to a backlash um, from those network companies who, you know, if they kind of do anything that rocks the boat with their relationship with them, um, we're proposing that the um, Australian Energy Regulator um, does compliance orders of the network companies for 10% of grid connections each year Mm. to make sure they're complying with standards for grid connections. So, Mm. sounds really dry, sounds really boring, but this is the kind of problem that you can't just fix with, you know, having one big carbon price. You know, it's the kind of nitty-gritty details of how the market's actually working in practice that is making life much harder for new renewable generators and means that renewables really aren't competing on a level playing field until we change it. Okay, well, look, that just takes me to my last question, that, you know, you're doing this, as you say, quite dry work and it's hard work, and you, I think, and Nikki Eisen have really, and, and you've had help from UTS um, researchers doing this, but do you think it's really weird that sort of parallel to government policymakers, there are people like you that get up and us at Beyond Zero Emissions and people at Greenpeace all putting their absolute best efforts into turning out alternative policies as if the government can't get the right ideas by themselves I I find I don't think there's a parallel in previous history where people have given all these alternatives to government do you? Um, I think that often great ideas and new ideas have come from outside governments um, and certainly political me- momentum for change has often come from social movements outside government. It's often not come from um, from political parties or from governments themselves. But I do think it's pretty surreal that um, we're doing this kind of work. Um, and bear in mind that the Ghana Review actually did a whole lot of this policy design and it all got tossed out because climate policy got massively politicised in yes. Australia and we had Tony Abbott's war on renewables. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it's frustrating, but in many cases we're all having to, um, you know, 
redo, re-go over old ground um, and make sure that we've got, you know, like good, credible policy solutions ourselves that can capture the fantastically renewing and rebuilding um, political and social momentum around renewables. And the fact is that a majority of Australians are now more likely to vote for a party that has a plan for a transition to 100% renewable energy. That's really exciting. Um, and it's time for us to seize the moment at the moment and the opportunity. And if that means some of us doing weird work on grid connection processes, yeah. then yeah. let's just do it. Okay, well, thank you very much. That was Miriam Lyons who's put her policy thinking hat onto all these complicated issues and she is a, a co-author of the Homegrown Power Plan. Thanks very much for talking to us, Miriam. Welcome. Thanks, Vivian. That's right. Oh, Welcome back to Beyond Zero Emissions. The team tonight was Teddy, Roger, Jody, and Viv. My name is Andy, and I'd like to thank our guests, Senator Lee Rhiannon, Miriam Lyons, and Nikki Eisen, plus Bear Please from 350.org. The song you heard was Kev Carmody's Eulogy. Uh, we need people who have industry experience or academic training and would like to lend their expertise to the Zero Carbon Australian project, we will be researching new technologies to eliminate greenhouse gas emissions out of the manufacturing of materials such as cement and steel. The volunteering will start in August and if you're interested, please phone Michael Lord, who is managing this project for BZE. His number is 0402-904-465. His email is michael.lord at bze.org.au. Thank you very much for joining us tonight on Beyond Zero Emissions. I'm Andy, and good night. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change.